This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild podcast is community supported. If you value this work, head over to forthewild.world to make a contribution. Also, consider rating us on iTunes. The silence is broken by somebody crying Trying to be heard, never a word Always the attitude, sort out your own Always alone, wishing for something The world is denying Out in the wilderness, somebody's crying Somebody wishing for something to happen Wishing to tell, wishing to help Someone was listening, someone who cared Never despaired Someone to lean on and someone to trust Who needs your assistance and finds your disgust Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today we are speaking with Miriam Horn. Miriam has worked at the Environmental Defense Fund since 2004. She has authored or co-authored three books, including the bestseller, Earth, the sequel, The Race to Reinvent Energy and Stop Global Warming, and Rancher, Farmer, Fisherman, Conservation Heroes of the American Heartland. Horn produced a film based on the latter book that premiered at Sundance and airs on Discovery in August 2017. She previously spent two decades writing for the New York Times, The New Republic, U.S. News, and World Report. Her first job was with the U.S. Forest Service in Colorado, doing timber management, trail construction, and education. Well, thank you, Miriam, for joining us today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Well, thank you for having me. So I want to just begin this conversation in a recognition of the ways in which we continue to succumb to political and psychological divisions of this culture. And I wanted to bring this up with you today, specifically uh, regarding your book, as it dispels one of the common myths that resides in the American psyche, a myth that really pegs ranchers industrial-scale farmers, commercial fishermen, CEOs as anti-environmentalism. So I'd love if you could share with us how, in your career with the Environmental Defense Fund and in writing of this book, that you experienced this myth to be untrue. Well, you've gotten really to the heart of the matter here and certainly the heart of the way EDF approaches the world. And for myself, it actually reaches all the way back to the beginning of my life when I, I grew up in Berkeley, California. So I grew up in an urban environment, but I spent a lot of time on a farm, a family farm in the Central Valley up near a town called Winters near Davis, California. And that was a hugely formative experience for me because that was my first introduction to the kind of broad consciousness that farmers often bring to the land, usually bring to the land. These are people who have often spent many generations on it and look forward to many more and so have a sense of connectivity and responsibility across time. They also have a tremendous sense of responsibility across space. This particular family was acutely aware and taught me about all the impacts they did would have downstream. They knew that any ways in which they were careless on their fields 
meant water pollution that would affect the communities downstream. They foresaw the water scarcity that California has been struggling with. And so they introduced me very early to this idea that some of the assumptions I'd grown up with in Berkeley already about people who work the land, the story was more complicated than the one I thought I knew. That was really reinforced in my 20s. I went to work for the Forest Service in Colorado. Most of my work up until then had been for the Sierra Club. I used to work summers leading trips into the backcountry for them and was certain that any chainsaws were just an evil thing, that cutting down a tree was necessarily an act of destruction. And when I started working for the Forest Service and came to understand how much more complicated forest management is and to, to really have to challenge my own certainties, that stayed with me the rest of my life. That experience of thinking I had full knowledge of a subject, feeling very righteous in that knowledge. And then when I actually invested the time to be in a place and know that place deeply and know the people who had lived there for a very long time and, and loved it and knew it with a depth that I couldn't begin to match, how much more complicated these stories became. And, and that was really what drew me to Environmental Defense Fund. It's an environmental group that absolutely believes in working across all kinds of divides. We do not apply litmus tests to our partners. We believe in working with partners who really have the reach to change the world at the kind of scale we need to change it. And as you indicated, we know that for the most part, we share enormous common ground that, again, the people who farm or ranch or fish these waters and lands have an investment, have a stake in it that is the greatest stake of all. They understand their livelihoods absolutely depend on these resources, and they bring a, a kind of love and sense of responsibility that is really enduring and really deep. And so I was inspired from the really almost the first week I came to EDF, I began to think about a project like Rancher Farmer Fisherman that would celebrate those unsung heroes, those people who, who not only go overlooked, but also often are demonized by people who tar them with a very broad brush as being destructive of the ecosystems they operate in. But again, if you look more closely, if you take more time, you listen, you read the science deeply, you find a, a much, much richer story. Yeah, I similarly felt a lot more righteous in my understandings of what it was to be an environmentalist even five years ago. And I now live in a logging community. And although I am not pro-logging, I see a lot of these loggers really love the forest. And it's not a separation for them. They may have grown up here. Their fathers may have been loggers. It's a legacy for them. They're also seeing the destruction of the planet and they're understanding that the forests aren't healthy anymore. And so I think that there are people that have used land in the past that have been destructive, even if they really didn't understand the extent to which their practices weren't healthy and are now trying to move forward, but still economically support their families. And you brought up that a lot of these folks are demonized. And I wanted to ask where, when, how, why do you think this stigma came from? Hmm, well, you know, I think you got at it in your first remarks that there is some sense of safety, I guess, some satisfaction. It seems like it's one of the less appealing parts of human nature that we do want to set ourselves against others and feel somehow more noble, feel right against other people's wrong. There's no question that there has been tremendous destruction done to these iconic American landscapes. Most of it unwitting, as you indicated. You know, when we went out, when we settled the West and we went out and we ripped up those prairies, everyone thought that it was a, a moral, noble thing to be doing that, that we were taming a useless wilderness. You know, if you read the works around the settling of the frontier, everything was about turning a worthless landscape to fruitful bounty, bringing order to chaos, realizing God's plan, 
enlightening the savages. It was all we had an idea of ourselves as doing something very good in the world. And some of it was cynical. Some of it were companies like railroads that wanted to build business and so persuaded people that they should go and plow up areas in Texas and Oklahoma where it never rained, promising them that the rain would follow the plow. And some of it was carnyism, was marketing that was knowingly deceptive. But a lot of it came out of a particular worldview of that time. And the people did not begin to understand the destruction entailed when you tore up these grasslands that had roots that often went 10 or 15 or 20 feet deep, these roots that held these fragile soils together and kept them porous to water and sustained these, the most complicated ecology on earth. The life in the soil is more complicated than a tropical rainforest. It's this amazing community of bacteria and fungi working in unbelievable symbioses and then this incredible above-ground ecology, birds and foxes and rodents. And so we didn't begin to understand that when we plowed up the prairie that we were exposing those soils, we were destroying the life in those soils, and we were stripping them naked and leaving them vulnerable to the kind of wholesale damage that happened in the Dust Bowl. So it's not out of nowhere, I guess, that the story of destruction comes. Destruction has been done a lot. The post-war era brought in a whole new kind of destruction into large-scale agriculture because the 20th century was an era of believing that our science and engineering was superior to anything nature might contrive. And so after the Second World War in the 50s, we came home from this military effort with all these new technologies and these huge munitions plants that needed to be used for something else. And this idea that we could improve on nature by sort of stripping clean our croplands and treating them like a factory floor, stripping them down to nothing and then using our science to add the precise mixture of nutrients that a plant might need. And that did a whole other kind of destruction that, again, added to the death of all of this microbial life in the soil, and it created a lot of pollution from excess fertilizer, highly damaging. It can off-gas into a greenhouse gas. When it goes into the water supply, it creates algal blooms and giant dead zones in places like the Chesapeake Bay or the Gulf of Mexico. A lot of the chemicals that we were using were highly toxic. So again, we did do another whole range of damage, again, coming out of a not evil motivations, but of a time-bound worldview that didn't begin to be reformed until the dawn of the study of molecular biology and microbiology, when we began in the 70s to be able to really look deep into this tiny world and understand the complexity of the life there and the essential roles that those microbial creatures were performing. I mean, we still are just learning about the degree to which our own bodies are really just giant sacks of microbes and that most of our own functions are dependent on those beneficial microbes. And the same thing was true for our farmlands, that we didn't understand that we had actually killed off our greatest allies. And so this big movement is to restore those alliances, to restore those natural systems that are more powerful and capable than anything our engineering can do. The microbes in the soil, the farmer I write about, Justin Knopf, he understands that his first job is to care for those microbes and that they in turn will care for his crops in a way far more robust and efficient than he can ever do himself, that he would much rather have an ecology of plants that can fix nutrients like nitrogen and microbes that can carry those nutrients around and can respond to stress signals that a plant might emit and let the ecology really nurture his crops. And he ends up with much more stable yields, much higher yields, much lower costs, much healthier crops, a much healthier family. You know, it benefits everyone all the way around, but it did take understanding microbial life in a whole new way to arrive there. So, I mean, one of the things that I loved is that it's alliances between human beings who thought they were enemies, and it's also 
alliances between man and nature is no longer this paradigm of control or of clearing nature out of our way. It's understanding that we need to work in synchrony. We need to emulate nature and we need to work with nature to sustain it so that it can sustain us. Thinking to this farmer that you're speaking about that's in your book, he clearly had an interest to learn about the soil and the science behind it. And he has clearly a connection with the land to have a certain type of reverence and respect, uh, not this human supremacist mindset that man can do everything better than the earth. Is that something that you found a lot of. You know, when you're talking about growing up in Berkeley, it's easy to an extent to find like-minded folks who are, quote, environmental. And I think there's probably even different languages, you know, different ways of speaking about it in other parts of the country and in different types of communities. But it's not to say that other people aren't environmental, even if they speak about it differently. So I'm thinking about this farmer and I'm like, you know, is he a rare bird out in those parts or are there others like him? And if he is a rare bird, do you find it when there are these folks that are spearheading this more earth-friendly way of working with the land, do they feel isolated in their own communities? That's a really great question. And I say in the introduction of my book that the people I write about are not outliers. They're not exceptions to the rule. That was Again, one of the discoveries Environmental Defense Fund afforded me when I first started working on the book and I started to look for the characters that I would feature, the first thing I did was interview my colleagues at EDF and my problem became an embarrassment of riches. I had dozens and dozens and dozens of stories I could have told, which represented actually hundreds and thousands more. When you look at the innovations that Justin himself, that the farmer has enacted on his land, and that includes he's given up plowing. He hasn't plowed his land in decades because soil is much healthier if it's left undisturbed. If you leave the dead residues of the previous crop, pop the soil to armor it. So he never plows his soil. He's added a lot more diversity in the things he plants on his soil, both the crops he grows to sell, but also what are called cover crops, a mix of plants he grows in between that introduce a whole other realm of diversity into the cropping system, again, emulating the diversity of nature. 
Those practices have now been adopted by about 20% of farmers across the heartland. These big farmers farming thousands of acres, growing wheat and soy and corn, 20% of them are now adopting these practices, and, and that is growing very fast. So to the larger point, this idea of feeling yourself a part of nature, not apart from nature, is absolutely something I found in every world I went into. The book is actually structured as a journey down the Mississippi River watershed, starting at the Missouri River headwaters in Montana with a rancher there and ending with a commercial fisherman in the Gulf of Mexico. I chose that landscape for a number of reasons. One, the heartland is a center of most of our natural resources. It's been really critical in it. American natural history and also America's national history, but also it really is red state America. And so I wanted to get very directly at this question of, is conservation a value held only by coastal democratic elites, or is it actually a deeply held near universal American value. And it's absolutely the second. It is a deeply traditional American value. The greatest environmental presidents in history have all been Republicans. The time we're living in now, where it's been set up as a democratic issue, this is the aberration. We've lost our way from a tradition that has endured from the beginning because as Ronald Reagan said, this is our patrimony. This land is what defines America. It is what sustains us. It is what forged our character. There is nothing more patriotic than protecting majesties and fruited plains and shining seas. There's a reason our national anthems are about those lands. So I wanted to make very clear that the people I was writing about were in fact reflective of a huge movement, huge hidden movement, but a huge movement nonetheless. And and in every case with this sense that nature is in fact our home, it is our sustenance. We don't survive without it. The rancher in Montana, Dusty Crary, I was standing with him once on his ranch and a coyote trotted across the land and I said, are you worried about him? And and he just shrugged and said, no, he's just trying to make a living. And he raises his cattle alongside grizzlies and wolves. And in every case, he sees himself as another animal among animals, that he has no more right to the land than they do, but also no less right, that you don't get to conservation by just driving human beings out. You figure out how to live in harmony. And again, you trust these natural forces. In his case, he tries to graze his cattle in the way that the big wild herds of grazers used to graze. You know, the herds of buffalo who would bunch together and graze a piece of land really intensively and then move on, often chased off by predators. So that's how he grazes his cattle because, again, it begins to click these ecological systems back into balance. The whole middle of my book is devoted to the CEO of a barge company and the a Vietnamese woman, a refugee who is the voice of the Vietnamese and Cambodian refugees who harvest most of the shrimp in the Gulf of Mexico. And they're both working on restoring the Mississippi River's ability to keep rebuilding the wetlands, the largest area of wetlands in the United States, which are absolutely critical for buffering New Orleans and the whole coast from hurricanes. They're critical for sustaining the largest fishery in the continental United States. They're critical for protecting our biggest oil and gas and petrochemical infrastructure and port infrastructure. They're one of the most complex and important ecosystems in the United States, but they're dying because the Mississippi was locked into these levees and could no longer dump all of its mud into them. So they're working on freeing the Mississippi opening up the Mississippi so it again can start rebuilding those wetlands. Again, recognizing that the force of that river is greater by orders of magnitude than the most amazing machine any human being could ever build. When you're speaking about the patriotism and the connection to this land, and it's interesting because I think even back to how a lot of wildland is actually conserved by hunters, you know, quote, conservative hunters. I think we'll have to continue 
to reconcile as a culture this concept of how we make claim to land, whether that's, you know, this patriotic feeling or the concept of land ownership itself or manifest destiny. You know, I know in your book, a lot of people had strong ties to the lands that they're working on, generations of stewardship even. But I guess I'm wondering how this relationship fits in with the rights of indigenous people to their ancestral lands. Well, you know, unfortunately, on most of this land, that story was written so long ago. It isn't still in play. The exception to that is up in Montana, this cowboy that I write about, Dusty Crary. The first struggle that he really fought was he lives on what's called the Rocky Mountain Front. He lives right beneath the Bob Marshall Wilderness Area and Glacier National Park, the last unaltered multi-million acre landscape outside of Alaska. It's about 10 million acres that looks pretty much like it did when Lewis and Clark arrived and had those first encounters with indigenous people. Kind of the first fight he fought was there was an effort in the 80s. The BLM, the Bureau of Land Management, was selling a ton of leases, mostly to Canadian companies to come in and drill for oil and gas all up and down the Rocky Mountain front. And they would have destroyed that landscape forever. And it's the last landscape where, for instance, grizzly bears still can move between the mountains and the prairie. It's really a rare treasure. So Dusty came back. He was a rodeo cowboy. He came home and he joined a bunch of guys who were working to push back and and succeeded in stopping oil and gas drilling. And those guys have gone on to assist the Blackfeet Indians who are still fighting a similar fight even further north, up really close to the Canadian border in the area called the Badger Two Medicine, which like the area that's threatened by the Keystone Pipeline and the areas that are now in jeopardy with the threat to shrink bear's ears. It's an area of tremendous sacred significance to this tribe and also the source of their water supply. So certainly that community in Montana who still do live alongside intact tribes who are still living out their cultures. I mean, obviously, even they got moved off of the lands that they own, but they still have some remnant of that, are very committed to trying to help them realize those rights. To me, it seems essential. We've left the indigenous people in this country such small shards of what they originally not exactly owned. I know most of them had a different feeling about their relationship to the land. But the idea that we would continue to violate those lands, I mean, I hope everyone listening to you will write their congressman right now and ask them not to allow the shrinking of the Bears Ears monument, which is incredibly critical land. You know, I don't know whether there's any turning back the Keystone Pipeline. That seems a battle lost, but it won't be the last one. And I do feel like we saw this, I think, on the episode around elephant ivory and the Trump administration's statement that they were going to remove the ban on the importation of elephant ivory. And the response was so intense that it was one of the first things we saw reversed and they kept that ban intact. And so I do think that citizen voices are more important right now than they've maybe been, at least since I was a little girl in the 60s. I think that this is a time where we absolutely have to make our voices heard. It's really, really important to stand up for those rights as bashed to the ground as they've been. Yeah, it's another complicated discussion of this land ownership and private lands and indigenous lands and public lands and who has control and how did the control get into those certain people's Mm -hmm. hands. And what can we do about it now? So many treaties have been broken. Public lands have been taken by oil companies. And it's really a big mess that we're in. And it's just interesting, I guess, to mention within the discussion on private lands, their role in creating habitat connectivity and sustaining greater ecological health. And you know, that's really clear in the story of Dusty Cray, the Montana rancher that you've been talking about, and the biodiverse ranches that provide crucial forage habitat for grizzlies and elk and deer and public, you know, governmental protected areas aren't enough to maintain healthy populations. And so I'm wondering if you could elaborate on this call for 
the environmental movement to not only focus on protecting public lands, but to also work with private landowners to realize large-scale conservation? Yeah, it's absolutely critical. There's only 1% of Americans who now ranch or farm or fish, but they manage 70% of America's lands. They fish the largest waters on Earth. America actually controls more of the ocean than any other country on the planet. So the responsibility that they hold is immense. So it's absolutely critical that they step up and meet that responsibility. I mean, most of them are living pretty close to the edge financially. So it's really critical at a time like right now when we're debating a farm bill and where we're going to put taxpayer dollars, how we're going to use those to help support agriculture, that that money go toward facilitating better practices on these farms, the practices that keep pollinators alive, mitigate climate change, and keep the water clean, and while also keeping us fed and minimizing the growing footprint of agriculture. Agriculture now hovers a part of the planet equal to the size of South America and Africa combined. We have given over as much of the planet as we can afford to to food production already. And so it is really critical that the land that we've already sacrificed to those purposes be used as efficiently as possible, that we really have high productivity farms, but done in a way that are really regenerative. And as you noted, up in a place like Montana, during the homestead days, it was mostly the rich river valleys that were settled by people, because that's where you have water, that's where you have really fertile soils. That's where you have weather that you can survive, not only in the summer, but also the winter in these really harsh landscapes. Well, for all those reasons, those landscapes are just as vital to animals. That's where elk and deer come to have their babies. It's where grizzly come down to gather berries and roots along the riverbanks. You know, when we started protecting wilderness, we tended to preserve what people call rock and ice. We like these super dramatic, really high altitude landscapes that play a role in, in the life cycle of a lot of these animals, but only for part of the year. They aren't able to eat at 12,000 feet either in the dead of winter. They need to be able to come down to low elevations so they can get food. They need sheltered places to give birth and raise their young. They need to be able to move over vast landscapes so that they can meet animals that are not their relatives to breed with. And after Dusty fought the fight against oil and gas, really his second fight was to try to get the huge historic ranches all along the Rocky Mountain front. Some of them, you know, they range from a few hundred acres up to thousands of acres to get them protected from development. That land was looking really appealing to people who wanted to cut it up for subdivision and you know sell little ranchettes. And once you've done that, you've completely destroyed its wildlife value. And so he put his own ranch into what's called a conservation easement, where he basically sold forever the right to develop it. His ranch can never be cut up. And he persuaded many, many, many of his neighbors to do the same and ended up protecting several hundred thousand acres of ranch land as native grassland, you know, a ranch is a pretty light touch way of producing food. If you're grazing cattle on native grassland, that's about the most minimal way that you can feed people and still protect native ecosystems. And then the, the third piece that Dusty fought for was to also protect the public land. There has been this fight, as you mentioned, there is this push out west led mostly by people like Rob Bishop in Utah congressman of Utah, to, they call it take back land. But in fact, the reason that those Western states have such big tracts of public land, meaning land that belongs to all of us, to every American citizen, is because they were territories. They weren't colonies, they were territories. So all of their land belonged to the United States of America, except for land that was specifically granted to the states. So there's no taking back land that was never yours to begin with. And the fact is that we've seen that if you want to protect these shared national resources like forests, like minerals, like water and rangeland, that the best protection comes from keeping them federal, that turning them over to the states or certainly selling them off to private entities 
basically gives away our heritage. It gives away our birthright, which are these great national resources that we all own together. So, you know, Dusty says it's all of a piece. If you lose any one of them, the whole thing falls apart. You have to have those public lands, those great tracts of forest and those huge mountain watersheds. And you have to have those rich bottomland ranches all protected or, you know, these great wildlife species will disappear. You said a little bit ago, 70% of the American landscape is managed by ranchers and farmers. That's an incredible number. Another really interesting number is that 80% of the world's biodiversity is held in the hands of indigenous peoples. So it feels like there's a really strong partnership there that could be had to bring more voices to the table on these huge swaths of land to bring in citizen science and traditional ecological knowledge and really be able to steward these lands and protect them from oil and gas extraction, subdivision development, all of these things that will destroy land, destroy the biodiversity and the wildlife habitat for generations to come. You had mentioned conservation easements. What the rancher in Montana did, he put his land into conservation easement. And I would love for you to explain to us the policies behind conservation easements. But then a part two to that is, in contrast, there's the concept of eminent domain, the power of government to take private property for public use, and how this power can also be delegated to even corporations. I mean, I've heard stories of this happening when private landowners refuse to forfeit land that stands in the way of a pipeline. So do conservation easements protect against eminent domain or are there any ways to make sure the land you love does not succumb to such a fate? Let me just start with the point you made about indigenous people controlling so much of the world's biodiversity because I just wanted to take note of the fact that Environmental Defense Fund is a global organization and we work a lot in 
forest preservation, in tropical forest preservation as a strategy for mitigating climate change. Those are huge carbon repositories. And we also work heavily on fisheries around the world. And in both of those efforts, we absolutely agree with you and, and recognize that the indigenous people, the work that we've done in the Amazon has really been led by indigenous partners who turn out to be by far the best protectors of those rainforests against illegal incursions and logging. And so we've worked really hard to make sure that they remain masters of that land. And similarly, in fisheries, we're very focused on nearshore fisheries, where most of the world's poor, many of the world's poor get their proteins. You know, these are sustenance fisheries where communities with few other resources really depend on them. And again, our strategy there is to try to ensure that the local community, the indigenous community, really has the secure right to those fish, that they aren't being poached out from under them by distant water vessels. And again, they invariably prove to be the best stewards of that resource if they're given a secure right to that resource. In terms of conservation easements, it's a pretty simple transaction that is very widespread across the country. It's used particularly heavily, I think, in the West. But basically, a landowner or someone who owns a big ranch can find a partner. It's most often a group like a land trust or the Nature Conservancy. They can calculate the difference in the value of that land if you were to subdivide that land versus to keep it intact that you are giving up some monetary value that you might gain if you were to carve it up and sell it in small pieces. So a group like the Nature Conservancy will actually buy those rights from a rancher. So the rancher doesn't have to sacrifice the inheritance he thought he might be able to give to his kids for the benefit of everyone, doesn't have to take the hit personally, but can then keep that land intact forever. It generally allows a ranch house to remain and current uses to remain, but you can't cut the land up, you can't drill on the land, you can't do sod busting, you can't plow up native prairie, you can't drain wetlands. So I do think, and and this is actually getting a little beyond my knowledge, but I have heard of instances where people that were conservation easement did provide protection against eminent domain because it does have built into the contract, but we're getting kind of out of my depth here. So many of the topics we've covered today are really bridging so many different groups together to create protection for land. And there's many different thoughts on how to do that and different ways to do that. Some are more successful than others. And, you know, I I think a lot about the ranchers and the farmers and the fishermen that you've been able to talk to. And it's challenging to bring people together to really agree with one another. Like for instance, I interviewed Sylvia Earle recently, who's an incredible marine biologist, and she is against fishing at all. You Mm -hmm. know, she's anti-fishing because her studies have shown that there is complete overfishing and the populations are collapsing. And then there's people in small fishing communities that are going, well, this is our whole economic way of life and we need to support our children and we need to eat. And then, you know, the statistic that what you said, the poorest people in the world, that's the protein for these people is fish. There's all of these global disagreements. There's local disagreements. And even, you know, there's might be some farmers who won't do till, but they'll use pesticides and that goes downstream. And so as we are trying to figure out solutions, there's going to be a lot of trials and tribulations along the way with how we move forward. You know, it's really just heartening to hear stories from your book of how people are learning to set aside these divisions and then come together in the service of conservation and earth. But then, you know, I wonder, you know, there might be people who really agree that they don't want oil drilled on their, you know, shared boundaries on their ranches, but they may still have conflicting values about, let's say, LGBTQ rights or immigration or government intervention or reproductive health, you know, and the list goes on and on. So I guess I'm curious how you've witnessed these shared conservation values intersect with any of the social controversies of today. 
a lot of these guys talk about what they call the 80-20 rule. And there's really two parts to that rule. One is that you start with the 80% of people who are actually really interested in finding solutions and in hearing one another, that you be pretty sure that at both ends, you're going to find about 10% of the people who really just want to hear the sound of their own voice or have, you know, have those pleasures of self-righteousness and shout other people down. And so you start by finding the 80% who really want to hear each other and try to find some pathway forward. I mean, that's really what democracy is, after all. And democracy is alive and well out in America, even if it's maybe not so alive and well in Washington, D.C. And then once you have that 80%, then you focus on the 80% that unites you. And you leave the 20% that divides you out of the room. Because otherwise, there's just no progress to be made. If you focus on what divides you, then you sabotage the opportunity to build solutions out of the 80% that unites you. And I think that that's a really wise way to proceed in the world. People just don't have to talk about everything. When you're in a room trying to figure out how you're going to protect this critical grizzly bear habitat or these critical heartland soils or the fish in the Gulf, you don't have to also bring every other issue into the room. You can really focus on the 80% that unites. You know, that also requires recognizing that there are trade-offs in any decision you make. And I think, you know, you referenced no-tillers who end up using pesticides. And if you look at someone like Justin, and that's a really important theme in particularly in that chapter, but again, throughout the book, that Justin has to make choices. You know, when you're farming a piece of land, it means you're trying to raise a crop and you have turned everything else into a weed and somehow you have to address those weeds. And historically, farmers did that by plowing them under. Well, once you understand that plowing can be the single most destructive thing that you do to soil ecology, you have to look for other alternatives. So what Justin constantly weighs is, okay, what is the least harmful alternative here. There is no perfect way to farm. The smallest, most local, most organic farm has a tremendous array of environmental impacts. And you have to face those forthrightly. You have to be honest about the trade-offs. And at every juncture, you have to weigh, what's the least harmful path I can choose here? So I think getting away from this idea that if people were just better, you know, if farmers weren't so greedy or evil, you know, we see cartoons put out there by companies like Chipotle or by some advocates that suggest there's an idyllic solution. And there isn't. Every farm exacts impacts. And if you're not being honest about the impacts that you're creating, then you're not really working to reduce those impacts. I wanted to say one thing about fishing. I mean, I admire Sylvia Earle to the moon, but there's also a lot of evidence in the chapter on fishing in my book, how if you can get fishing policy right, Fish can actually recover incredibly rapidly and sustain people, that you can both have more fish in the water and more fish on the plate and livelihoods for fishing communities if you get fishing policies structured properly. And again, those go to making sure that the people in that community have secure right, that these fish aren't being fished out from under them. So I, I have a more optimistic view, I guess. I think that you don't have to make a choice between leaving people hungry or erasing the fish on the planet, that you really can recover both. Baby, that's a cigarette hanging on the ground with a little man, honey. Tells me that I've lost my way through the broken bones and the cigarettes, honey, cry to me. No more Long for me No more Mississippi Delta Runs right through your veins Splits into fissures And you've never been the same Will you pull your face to see If there ever were a place for you and me it'd be way down there in the Delta Valley 
I was just kind of taking in all of these different ways of understanding the situation that we're in and how we can come to the table with all of our different privileges, oppressions, positionalities in the world, understanding that not all of us have access to the same things, how that presents itself in these discussions around land management and conservation, being able to reconcile and make reparations for hundreds of years of oppression and abuse with the land and people, how that ties into the whole discussion. And then we go from these huge divisions, and I would even say ancestral divisions, to the divisions of today where we're talking about local politics or the politics of even gender bathrooms. I mean, there's just so many things to feel divided on. And ultimately, those divisions aren't going to allow us to make big changes if we are divided on so many things. But I also feel like there's this way of moving forward that does respect the oppressions and the traumas and the abuses that have happened and does respect that many of the people in power, I mean, honestly, the majority of the people in power and also who have land ownership are white and they're settlers and how that plays into this equation. Like, how do we come to these roundtable discussions with really understanding the history the complexities of this time and where the earth is at and also sustain some kind of economic balance and also protect wildlife. I could keep going on into this vortex because even in my own heart right now, I feel conflicted about how humans can really see eye to eye to make these big decisions. But I also feel like it is a mandatory subject to breach. You look at how national politics are operating right now and what's happening at the EPA or the Department of Interior and the degree to which it's absolutely clear that the oil and gas industry is really writing the rules. And that is as upsetting to me as it is to you. We can feel really powerless to stop that when you have people who are put in the leadership positions there, Scott Pruitt in particular at EPA, who clearly is interested in doing whatever he can to facilitate the profit-making by the oil and gas industry, no matter what it costs the rest of us in terms of toxins in our water and air and destroyed land. And so we're getting a particularly acute sense of the degree to which money and power can push us in the wrong direction right now. At the same time, I've had the privilege these last four years of just being out in the country in these communities and, I mean, including at least a non-white community in Louisiana, the Vietnamese refugee community, and seeing the depth of commitment and the degree to which people are respecting each other and are really facing up to the challenges, talking openly about climate change in arenas where you never dreamed they might. And, you know, in the most conservative farm groups are talking openly directly about climate change and the need to address it. And the restoration effort on the Louisiana coast is figuring out ways to make sure that these highly vulnerable coastal communities that do include the indigenous tribes, the Homa Indians and the other indigenous peoples of Louisiana, and also the refugee communities and the African-American communities who are heavily in the oystering, but, you know, they're really figuring out ways to make sure that their voices get heard in designing the biggest environmental restoration project in the history of the world. If I hadn't had that experience, I would be feeling a lot of despair, and I often do anyway, but getting out in those communities and seeing what Americans are still capable of has held me up these years, and I hope can help hold other people up and keep them working towards something better because we always get there. We lose our way, but we always get there. Mm. (laughs) To close out our conversation, I would love for you to, one, you know, please share your website and where people can screen your film and get your book. Also, if you could speak to the folks out there that are in divided communities and who really want to learn a way forward where they can connect and communicate for the greater good. What, what's some advice that you have for all of us, honestly, out here that are really looking to share a common goal with our fellow community members? 
for conservation? Well, so the book that I hope people will read, it's called Rancher, Farmer, Fisherman, Conservation Heroes of the American Heartland. The film, if you are a Discovery subscriber, the film is available for free on Discovery Go, which is like HBO Go. It's their kind of archive. In terms of advice, making a commitment, making a promise to yourself to give people the benefit of the doubt and go in with the determination to listen for a while, to spend more time than you might be inclined to. I've been back and forth through red state and blue state America with this book and film for about a year. And what's been really gratifying to me is that in both of those places, I have found people really open to having their mind changed. I've been in communities that thought that the only possible good way to farm was small and local and organic who have really been, you know, extremely open to understanding why the tillage that is prevalent on organic farms, why that might be something to be as concerned about as chemicals, um, to really think about the food they eat in a different way. You know, similarly, I've been really moved to find groups like the American Farm Bureau and, and National Corn Growers shouldering responsibility for clean water and opening their doors to environmentalists like me and partnership with groups like EDF. And I think in both cases, it requires a kind of humility and losing the chips on our shoulders, losing the sanctimony, not feeling the need to probe every possible issue, but deciding that the goal is to find common ground, to, to focus on that of where can we agree and where can we build something positive together. You know, for me, the relationships I have with the people I wrote about have become very deep. I think we count ourselves friends with a lot of love, despite the fact that, you know, I'm a New York City liberal through and through, and they're heartland conservatives. And a lot of it is about time. It's about how you build a relationship with anyone. It's about respect and listening and a kind of gentleness and a candor in those relationships. I think it's the only way we get anywhere. I could not agree more. That is such a meaningful and beautiful way to end this conversation is that it's about relationships and relationships do take time and attention and care and to really connect with people across divisions to make monumental things happen. We have to, like you said, listen and have a gentleness. And that is just such an incredible way to move forward in this world. And I'm going to take that from this conversation. It's, it was a very deep point that I think will touch many people when they hear that. So thank you, Miriam. Thank you for your work, your commitment for so many years at going to these places and listening and learning and observing. Thank you for this conversation, and I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you. I have too. You've asked wonderful questions. Thank you for listening to For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayana Young. The music you heard today was music submissions from our community. You heard two songs by Bay Troxel, Be Gone and Delta, and then Buried on the Wind by Fletcher Tucker. If you'd like your music to be on the show, go to forthewild.world, and there you'll find a music submissions tab where you can upload your work. Our theme music is Silence Returns by Bo and Like a River from Kate Wool. I'd like to thank the For the Wild team, including March Young and Reach Out, Madison Magolski, and Molly Lebo. Drifting on the wind, through the mountains like a river.